Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Alegi. And I'm Peter Lim. Our special guest uh, this month is Dr. Heather Hughes. She grew up in Johannesburg and later received a PhD under Shula Marx at SOAS. For many years she taught at the University of Natal, uh, now the University of KwaZulu-Natal in African politics and history. And she was also active in the detainees support movement and Black Sash and was a researcher for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In more recent years, she's participated in projects to refurbish and publicise South Africa's neglected heritage, notably on the Ananda Heritage Trail, just north of Durban. And she has received awards for her human rights and educational work. However, today, the focus of uh, the discussion will be her remarkable new biography, uh, the first scholarly biography of John Dubé, the uh, founding president of the ANC. Uh, Dr. Hughes is currently a Principal Teaching Fellow at the University of Lincoln, where she teaches African Studies and Tourism Policy and Development in the Third World and links between tourism, heritage and culture. She's also currently completing a history of segregated leisure spaces, spaces on Durban's beachfront. Um, as well as that, she's published on diverse topics such as African responses to Indian indentured immigration to Natal, uh, John Dubé as well, and John Dubé's first wife, Adelaide Dubé, uh, in Women Writing Africa. And last month I had the pleasure of being on a panel with Heather Hughes in Sweden, and I'm sure that her conversation with you, Peter, in Durban uh, was equally sparkling and stimulating. Thank you, Heather, for joining me. Uh, we are at the Southern African Historical Society Conference in Durban at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. And um, Heather Hughes has just published a wonderful biography of the African National Congress's first president, John Langalibalele Dube. And um, could you tell us a little bit about this project, Heather, which uh, you've spent a lot of time on and uh, is finally out with Jakana Press? Thank you, Peter, and it's really good to be here at the um, conference. Um, I was based in Durban for 25 years of my career, and part of that was spent living out at Inanda, which is an area north of the city of Durban. Um, it was historically an African mission reserve in colonial times, and it I can really say was a kind of life-changing experience for me to live out there. I got very interested in the local history. Um, the chiefdom, who historic, which historically had lived out there, the Kadi chiefdom, I wrote my PhD on that under Shula Marx in the, in the 1990s in London. And this story of John Dubé really, I suppose, flowed more or less out of having looked at that chiefdom because, of course, he himself and his family were members of that chiefdom, as well as being um, part of the Christian community which grew up at the Inanda Mission Station. So that's really, in a nutshell, how I came to be interested in John Dube. And the mission itself has connections to the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, which mission and, and its role in South Africa at the time? Yes, I think it's in some ways more than just a connection. In fact, I think the mission itself and many others like it in Natal were little bits of America in Africa. Um, they were. This was a mission um, 
um, initiated by Daniel Lindley, who was one of the most famous and one of the first wave of American missionaries to be sent out from the States by the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Um, the church in um, Natal came to be known as the American Zulu Mission. Um, and so um, Inanda was one of their most prosperous stations. The other very, very well-known one was Adams to the south of Durban. There was a string of others up and down the coast of Natal, but those really, I suppose, were the two most important in terms of education um, and training for the priesthood. Education of women as well as men, as well as, um, as I said, training for the priesthood, and therefore perpetuating the church in Southern Africa as the Congregational Church. And how did John Dube's schooling uh, transform him? Well, you know, I think that even even when I was living at Inanda Seminary, which is one of the very famous girls' schools founded by the American missionaries at Inanda, it was striking that all the furniture, all this sort of architecture of the school was all American. You know, everything was imported from America, the books, the textbooks. Of course, there was a certain amount of translation that went on into Zulu, but so many of the books that the children learned from, the desks that they sat at, um, was, was all um, imported by the American missionaries. And I think that that's a hugely important thing in John Dubé's life, this shaping influence of American. And of course, a lot of the missionaries, and Daniel Lindley here is important, and his successors, um, were very enlightened. Daniel Lindley's son fought for the Unionists in the Civil War. They were, they supported um, the ending of, of slavery. They were, they were very enlightened. They were Republicans and enlightened um, in, in their time. And so that, that's an important um, consideration, I think, in, in, in remembering the influences that went into the making of John Dube. You talk about uh, sort of liberal American influences, if you will, on Dubé's life. Uh, the American board facilitated his travels uh, to the United States, if I'm not mistaken. Or, or how did he find his way to Oberlin, Ohio, which was, of course, uh, an institution associated with uh, liberal white Americans and the fight against slavery? Was, that, I believe, the first integrated uh, college in the United States? Well, the interesting thing is that John Dubé um, was born remarkably in 1871 and he was a third generation Christian. His, was, his grandmother had converted to Christianity, his father was one of the earliest ordained pastors of the, of the American Zulu Mission, the Congregational Church, and then along came little John and his brothers and sisters. And he got into a lot of trouble at school because his dad had died and I think he lacked a father figure and he was sort of wondering about his life and wondering about um, the direction he would take. One of the surprising things that I found in this research is that his older brother actually dropped out of school and reverted to traditionalism. I mean, these are things that are remarkable, and he man maintained contact lifelong with that brother, although the brother lived an incredibly different life to the one he finally chose. But he got to America via a remarkable missionary of the American Zulu mission called William Cullen Wilcox. Um, he features in a lot of stories, I think, of, 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 um, of interest. And Wilcox became a father figure to Dubé, um, and it was through his um, agreement 
that um, John Dube found his way to Oberlin. Um, he accompanied John Dube, although um, John's mother, who was by now widowed, paid for his experiences, uh, well, paid for his travels. He still, when he got to America, had to earn a lot of money um, in order to see his way through school. But um, yes, um, there was um, a, 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 an instrumental role played by Wilcox. Yes. And what about Oberlin? You have chapter three in the book uh, entitled An Encounter with Ice Cream. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about why you chose that title and what it says about Dubé's experiences in the United States. Yeah. I, I've sort of, he recount, John Dubé himself recounted um, an incident which occurred to him, which happened to him when the party just arrived in Boston because it was. Uh, that was where they arrived in the States. And um, they were served ice cream in a hotel. And um, he had never encountered ice cream before, and he got the shock of his life. He'd never, he thought it was just something sort of um, uh, room temperature. And when it was freezing cold, he, caused, he, he, he thought the, the, the waiters were playing a trick on him, being an African, young African. And um, he caused a bit of a scene, and then, of course, had to, had to apologize to everybody when he realized that nobody had played a trick on him and this was just a new taste that he had to get used to and he did add in his this account that he'd subsequently become very fond of ice cream but to me it was emblematic of his encounter with modernity it was a bit of a shock to the system and he learned to adapt and to 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 use it to advantage yes and of course he struggled financially uh, as a student and he found his way back to South Africa and uh, from that encounter with modernity American style I think he as you show in the book he drew inspiration to for example establish the Ochlange Institute yes. um, tell us a little bit about uh, not just Ochlange as a school but where the inspiration came from and maybe its its initial impact okay I think um, one of the important things um, to remember is that not only had John Dubé gone through a whole um, experience of being immersed in an American worldview, a, a Puritan worldview through his schooling, but he spent about nine years of his adult life before he became president of the ANC in the States. Um, so, sometimes training further, he, he ordained as a, as, a, as a pastor and he was ordained in, in Brooklyn um, and, and often on fundraising trips um, because he had this vision and his vision was based not only on Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee as, as, as was the case of many of his generation wanting to establish institutions of that sort in Africa but he also um, was exposed to other kinds of African-American influences and one of the ones that I found which I was, was intriguing to me was his correspondence with John Edward Bruce who was um, who who well, I think there were a lot of overlaps in, in, in uh, all these, th these African-American thinkers at the time, but Bruce did have a much more sort of militant approach to political engagement than, than, than Washington had. I mean, Washington didn't feel that political engagement and winning the vote and getting seats in Congress and all of that stuff was very, very important for, for African-Americans at all, whereas Bruce did. Um, and so these were all influences that I think um, fed into the making of John Dubé and formed his sense of what of, of his sort of redemptive mission when he returned to Africa. He he wanted to 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 um, to um, 
civilize his people as he saw it in the same way that African Americans were civilized, but he didn't want to lose um, something which he defined as essentially African either. So he, was, he, he had a great deal of race pride, but he felt that a lot could be rescued from, from his traditionalist past as well as molding it into something new. This was what his African redemptive mission was all about. And the way in which he saw himself as um, carrying this out, um, and it's not just him, by the way. I mean, one of the things I've tried to say in this biography is that he could not have done this without his extraordinary partner and wife, Nogutela Dube. They, both, they were both in this together. They founded Ortlange um, as, as, as a center which was primarily educational, but it was a lot more than just an educational center. Um, they founded it with, with the idea of educating people for a different role in society. Um, and a lot has been made of Ortlange and its um, industrial or vocational education. A lot less is said about what John Dube thought was equally important, which was academic intellectual rigor and education. Nogutela, for example, founded an extraordinary music department at the school, which became very famous for the, for the composers that it produced and the music that it produced. Um, that was where also the newspaper which John Dubé founded, Ilanga, was based. Um, it was an integral part of the school. Ilanga was an integral part of the school. Ilanga being the newspaper. The newspaper which he formed. And so this was not just an educational establishment. This was a lot more. It was a kind of miniature new society in the making. And the important thing about it was that it was entirely independent of the missions. He never split particularly from the American Zulu mission, but he wanted his project to be independent of their financing um, and it was free of state control as well which is why the state didn't particularly like it in colonial Natal. So it was, it had, something like this had never been tried before in this part of the world, Natal, um, an entirely independent school run by African people for African people or educational um, establishment. Yeah. So by the time modern South Africa, the Union of South Africa is formed in 1910. You've got Ulanga uh, in place, you've got a newspaper, Ilangalas in Natal, largely in Isizulu. Uh, John Dube has acquired uh, a very prominent position. He's also started by, by then a political career, so he's not just an educator and a journalist, but he, he becomes yes. a politician. Yes. Um, obviously first president, a reference to the fact that he becomes yes. the, the first president of what is now called yes. the ANC in 1912. Um, do you think um, the evaluations of Dube uh, so far have been fair to his role, his political role? I'm thinking here of Shula Marx's essay in the book Ambiguities of Dependence, or, or even Manning Marable, uh, his PhD thesis on, on Dube. Yeah. I Conservative, think that, radical, yeah. what, what well, was he? What should I we make of him? I think that, that those, two, those two works were absolutely seminal, and, and um, if, if there are differences in my approach, I think they stem from the fact that they were, I think, trying to write, um, they were trying to set John Dube in history, in, in a historical context. They were writing history. I tried very much to set myself the task of writing a biography, which meant focusing much more on individual idiosyncrasies rather than, rather than talking in terms of structural ambiguity, which I think is fine if you're talking about a group of people 
and as, as Shula Marx was. I mean, she grouped together a number of people in her study. It was an attempt to understand some big movements in time, big changes, big events happening. Whereas I was looking at one single individual, and I think that perspective is what offers a different interpretation, although um, I'm not, I, I don't think that I'm arguing in any way against what they achieved. I'm building on it. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say, because these are two giants. Um, to answer the question about whether he was radical or whether he was conservative, I think the problem was that um, he was operating in an environment which was almost entirely against him in terms of the sort of white colonial state and then after that the sort of Union of South Africa when it was formed in 1910 and the segregationist governments. This was not an easy environment. He was progressively excluded, I would argue. Um, he had to sort of put out fires, as it were. Um, he was hauled up often before colonial officials asking what on earth he was doing, asking him to temper the language in his newspaper and so on. Um, but the other problem was that in order to get funding from local benefactors, um, he almost had to downplay his political role and, and some of his local and important benefactors um, who, who, who really were fantastic in their support of Otlange didn't want him to become involved in politics. So this was the, this was the circumstance with, with which he was dealing. And he didn't want to, he, he saw his roles as educator, as um, pastor, as editor, as politician, as complementary, but, but his backers didn't, and nor did the government, I think. And so that produced some of what Schuller has called structural ambiguities. Um, for me, I had to look at how an individual dealt with those things, and he did so by some fancy footwork, by dissembling from time to time, um, and finally coming out and saying, I'm going to do all of this. This is, I, I see this as important, and I'm going to do it all. And to his credit, one of his major backers who tried to keep him out of politics, Marshall Campbell, one of the biggest sugar barons of the region, continued to support Inanda, uh, sorry, Ohlange, um as a result, I mean, even though he tried very hard to keep Dubé out of politics. So I think that it was not an easy environment for Dubé to, to work in. I think that the sad thing was that his, his, his final decision to go into politics did really um, reduce the time that he could spend um, supporting Ortlange and the Ortlange vision did in fact unravel as a result. So it turned out in the end that his roles as a key figure in the sort of um, African redemption mission um, educationally and pol politically those two roles in the end uh, worked against each other and um, he couldn't sustain both of them. You mentioned Nogutela Dube, mm. uh, John Dube's uh, better half, so to speak. Mm. Um, what was her relationship like with, with her husband, and, and what was her influence on him? Um, that's an interesting question, Peter, because I think... Um, the way in which they portrayed themselves in the American press, and this is an interesting thing, you know, in the 1890s she was giving interviews in her own right and speaking on platforms in the States to raise money for their, what they saw as their redemptive mission, although Othlanga was only founded in 1900, through the 1890s they were fundraising. Um, she presented herself as a very ordinary Zulu woman. 
who'd been born to an ordinary family, whereas John Dubé presented himself as a member of a chiefly family. So they kind of covered both, the ordinary and the chiefly. Um, and that was how they presented themselves in, in, in the press in America. They obviously didn't have the same exposure to the press here ever. Um, but certainly th those, th and, and that was the main occasion on which she was able to talk about herself and her history was, was to, 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 for interviews in the American press. Um, so that's how she presented herself. She um, was a remarkable woman. She also came from, uh, her parents had converted to Christianity. She was educated at Inanda Seminary. Their worlds had been intertwined for a long time by the time they were married in 1894. Um, she was an incredibly talented musician. She sang beautifully. Her singing raised a lot of money for Otlange on their various fundraising tours. She formed the first choirs at Otlange that became justifiably famous. She produced, with John Dube, the first book of secular songs in Sizulu that was ever produced in 1911, which means this year is the centenary of their songbook. Um, and um, it would be lovely if an African choir could come forward to, to, to sing some of those songs. So her role in keeping Otlange going, partly through her fundraising efforts, partly through her dedication as a teacher, was enormous. Um, and I, I, I rather regret having found out through this research that she's more or less been completely forgotten and her role overlooked. I must confess my complete ignorance prior to reading your book about Nogutela, so thank you for, for those lessons. Um, to start closing here, um, you made some remarks in the conference about the consistencies in Dubé's life. I asked you whether he was a conservative or, or, or a radical, you gave a wonderful answer. Uh, what, what were the consistencies uh, in his life? What, what were the core principles that guided him uh, throughout, perhaps? Can we point to, to a few? I think probably the, the, the most consistent position that Dubé adopted, um, and this was from his earliest pronouncements to the end of his life, even though he was seen as a bit of a compromised figure by the end of his life, he had agreed to work within the segregationist system to some extent, he had agreed to take a place on the Natives Representatives Council in 1936, which was a creation of the Herzog government, and many Africans thought of it as a kind of toy, toy telephone um, but through all of that, he maintained a consistent position that Africans in South Africa had a right to a vote and places in the central political institutions of the Union of South Africa, the central um, parliament. Um, they didn't want to be fobbed off into regional uh, or local council systems. And that was a remarkably consistent position which he, which he called for through his whole life. And even in the 1940s, that was quite a radical position to hold. We want seats, we want to be able to vote for in the Houses of Parliament of this country alongside all other South Africans. And that, that was, I think, uh, that's an important thing to flag up, his consistency on that very position. So there's the foundation for the one person, one vote call that unified uh, millions of South Africans in their struggle for, for freedom yes. in many ways. And, and I think, if I could just say, I think that was what made it particularly poignant that Nelson Mandela chose Otlange um, as the site of 
the place where he would cast his vote in 1994. Um, and he did go to Dubé's grave after he'd voted to say, and it was a wonderful moment, Mr. President, South Africa is now free. And it was just very fitting that Mandela should have chosen Orlange um, to cast his vote in 1994. That's great. And he was, if I'm not mistaken, side-by-side uh, uh, -side with Jacob Zuma he was. at the time, the current president Indeed. They of, voted together. of South Africa. Well, Heather Hughes, the author of a wonderful new biography, First President, A Life of John Langalibalele Dube, founding president of the ANC, the African National Congress of South Africa. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Peter. It's been good to talk. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>